0: Welcome to Babel Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters.
1: This week on Babel, John talks to Nabih Bulas about disinformation in the Middle East. Then, John McKinley and I talk about state run news sources in the region.
0: To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is is Babel. We're talking today with Nabi Bulos. He's the Middle East Bureau Chief for the Los Angeles Times. Nabi, thanks for joining us on Babel.
2: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: You wrote a really interesting article recently about the rise of disinformation warfare in the Middle East in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. What were you talking about?
2: Well, so I was speaking specifically about Libya uh, recently. I think in December and again sometime in March, there were waves of page closures, which is to say that Facebook and Twitter went in and basically deleted some fake accounts and removed some pages, which they uh, been accused of being basically government-led, uh, and and were basically part of a larger effort uh, in spreading disinformation about uh, various uh, regional adversaries. Now, of course, now it should be mentioned that this wasn't just a matter of COVID-19. This had been going on for quite some time. But the interesting part for me was that it was actually now co-opting the problems of COVID-19. I mean, maybe not so much co-opting them, but let's say utilizing them in the service of basically attacking uh, these various adversaries. So in this particular case, it was centered around Libya uh, and it involved, um, you know, this sort of tripartite alliance between Saudi Arabia, Egypt and the UAE, uh, which is the Arab Emirates. Um, against Turkey and Qatar. And one of the proxy battlegrounds in this fight is indeed Libya. And that's where you see some of the worst disinformation being spread. And indeed, it did use COVID-19 in various ways.
0: When I think of disinformation, certainly in the current environment, people think of of Russian disinformation and the way Russian agents have, have tried to foment confusion. Do you see a Russian hand in any of this? Is there a direct Russian connection, where is this people learning lessons from Russians and just taking it on their own? Is there any broader context that, that, that seems to be spurring this?
2: Well, actually, it's a bit of both, right? So you see uh, a direct Russian hand in the case of disinformation that's employed by the Syrian government and also by the three, specifically in Libya. And that's because Russia is actually um, a sort of shadow ally of Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Egypt in the fight in Libya. So, in fact, you do see some of that or, or some of those techniques that were made famous by the Russians in the past. In Syria, of course, this has been happening you know, forever because Syria is finally a, I mean, it's very much a Soviet-inspired regime, if you will. And so, uh, you know, their brand of disinformation has been much more closely related to what you see in the Russian press or in the Soviet press perhaps more accurately. But also, you know, in, in, in modern times and especially now in the context of the Syrian civil war – you're often seeing Russian disinformation being employed to discredit certain adversaries of the Assad government. So, uh, I mean, of course, the primary example of this is the White Helmets, uh, you know, who are also known as the Syrian civil defense. This is a group of first responders who are, I mean, who have been basically part of a very, very large disinformation campaign by Russia, accusing them of various things. Now, mind you, it should be said that some of what they say actually is based in fact, right, or based on, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, a different reading of the battlefield. And yet a lot of it is, of course, outright falsehoods. And the idea is that they have staged various attacks or, or, or done like false flags attacks to basically discredit the Syrian government, et cetera, et cetera. And that's been, and of course, you see a lot of this happening. You know, every time you see the OPCW, you know, the organization for the, for the chemical weapon watchdog, basically, and you see that organization often coming out with reports. And then you see a wave of just Russian-based disinformation coming out against it and trying to discredit the report and the information in it
0: has this been increasing in the last year? Is it steady state? What seems to be spurring it at various times and when does it seem to to die down?
2: Well, so increasing is a hard one to say, right? Because it's been going on for, I mean, at least since last year, right? I mean, that was perhaps the first time I was really, you you know, starting to get aware of it, I suppose. In terms of, and in terms of what's happening now, I guess, Actually, I spoke recently to an expert who keeps on monitoring bots. You know, bots are these automated programs that sort of uh, amplify tweets. Yeah. And uh, an interesting part here is that this guy was saying that uh, he had never seen so many bots, you know, centered on a region. And in this case, it was the Middle East. He was saying that actually in his analysis of, of what he calls sort of automated behavior from various social media accounts, he saw that he had encountered much more than least than anywhere else. Um, all which is to say that, you know, yes, there is actually a lot of information happening here. Has it increased, uh, you know, markedly in the COVID-19 crisis? I don't know. But it has been ramping up over the last year for sure. And the reason for that is because, I mean, obviously you have such high penetration rates for social media in the Arab world. You know, so a great example is actually Libya again. I mean, Libya, the funny part here is that in Libya, most uh, officials are on Facebook. I mean, if you come up and ask for an email, they'll actually give you the name of their Facebook ID, right? So you can mm-hmm. look uh, so at their page. All of which is to say that Facebook is actually the main form of communication. In Saudi Arabia, for example, Twitter for a long time, it was the top form of communication as well, you know, in social media. Uh, When it comes to areas like Jordan, Lebanon, et cetera, et cetera, you know, every time you see this, that Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, et cetera, these are becoming um, just more and more the dominant form of communication, even even between government and citizens.
0: And when you talk about the, the, the rising number of bots, Is it clear where they're based? Are most of them based in the region? I know Saudi Arabia has been accused of using uh, an active program of of, of bots. Iran has been accused. Do they mostly seem internal or do they seem to be external or nobody really knows?
2: That's a great question. I mean, the guy I spoke to actually said that it seemed to be mostly internal, in fact. And I also spoke to someone from the EU's disinformation uh, watchdog. Uh, They have this group called EU versus Info. And I had spoken to the top person there, and they were saying basically that, yes, actually there had been a lot of uh, campaigns when it comes to sort of this, I mean, I think the name is inauthentic behavior, I believe. Um, <laughs> Sounds like a good name for a band. Yeah, exactly. And the funny thing here is that basically they were saying that, I mean, although that particular watchdog is involved with attacks on the EU, you know, they were saying that even though they hadn't seen much of that, because, you know, I guess their world is more concerned with itself, there were you know, quite a few disinformation campaigns going on at the same time
0: some governments are are going on offense. How are governments playing defense against this kind of behavior?
2: Well, so you're seeing these various governments launch platforms that are meant to sort of, you know, correct information, right? So in Jordan, for example, they have this one platform called Sahih, you know, which which is to correct, in other words. And the idea here is that you're supposed to correct your information. And this comes up with periodic uh, posting saying, hey, this is one thing, uh, you know, you know, this was said, but in reality, it's this, Uh, You're seeing other forms of this where basically, I mean, obviously you have officials coming out and combating various rumors as they come up, clearly. But of course, as you said, it's also a matter of going on offense, right? And a great example of this, again, is found in Libya and also involving Saudi, Egypt and UAE against uh, Turkey and Qatar. So if you think of those five countries as kind of a sort of a strange Cold War situation going on between them where there aren't necessarily active hostilities, but they tend to sort of affect uh, proxy battlegrounds. And so, you know, here again, you'll see, for example, Turkey and Qatar are in charge of a website called Emirates Leaks, which basically sends out sort of damning information about the UAE, right? Then you have this other group called AT, which is Egyptian, and they produce these slick videos that are constantly just exuriating Turkey and Qatar. And they were saying, for example, that the Emir of Qatar had COVID-19 and his wife did as well. They came on saying that Turkey's on the verge of... A full-on collapse because of Erdogan's policies that basically you know, are all about the economy while letting the workers die, etc., etc., etc.
0: So we have this world in which folks are lying all the time. There are bots that are elevating the voices that are telling lies. If governments want to persuade their citizens of the truth, what vehicles do they have?
2: Again, that's another great question. I mean, the fact is that at this point, yeah, people are more inclined to not believe their officials. And it should be said, that's happening with good reason. I mean, the fact is these governments are paying the price of having sort of dabbled in this propaganda for so long and feeding their, their citizens such nonsense for so long and for really actually being dinosaurs when it comes to dealing with the internet and social media. Frankly, you know, they've reaped what they've sown in the first place. But it should be said that in terms of what they can do, I mean, you're seeing sort of different efforts now these days to sort of, you know, be more transparent about certain issues or engaging with foreign as well as local media, you know, trying to be perhaps more aware. At the same time, it should be said that these governments are still really in sort of the 1980s mode, right, of just sort of declaring something and expecting these people to fall in line. And in fact, they're going after people who don't fall in line. I mean, just the other day in Jordan, in the case of the COVID-19 situation, you saw uh, the head of a TV station, of a TV news station and, and that of its news division as well, they were both put in jail uh, overnight because they had broadcast a report which, and I quote here from the statement, uh, didn't fall in line with the government's policies in combating the contagion. Um, and this is funny because the fact is all they did was they showed an interview with a bunch of people saying, hey, look, you know, we can't continue in this fashion. right? We can't do a lockdown. We're day laborers. We live hand to mouth. Uh, the fact is if they don't open up soon, we're going to have to resort to stealing and drugs, et cetera. Is that what they want us to do? You know? It was like one of those angry interviews. And if you believe, the next day they went in, imprisoned those two people and kept them overnight until the, until the station apologized and promised it wouldn't broadcast any such, uh, you know, seditious news items anymore.
0: So how do Arab publics react to the government's actions? Because I assume that the public understands that the that, that people say things that aren't true all the time. And that in many cases, publics have been accustomed to saying things that aren't true all the time how do people respond to truth-tellers being
2: punished? I mean, all it does in the case of Jordan and other places is, of course, it makes people sort of hide their thoughts more or, let's say, be, you know, more selective in who they're going to talk to about these things. But it doesn't mean that it goes away. I mean, all it does is sort of create pent-up pressure, which will eventually, I think, explode. And the fact is, you know, in Jordan, you know, is an example of this, I mean, it's no secret that these people are now suffering, right? I mean, it's no secret that the country economically was already not doing well. It's no secret that people, you know, are day laborers who have this hand-to-mouth existence. You know, all these are not secrets. And yet the government saw fit to sort of, you know, suppress this idea. But it doesn't mean it has gone away. And so, you know, you see them turning more and more to WhatsApp groups, sort of private pages on Facebook, et cetera, to spread the information that they require.
0: But if it explodes, if that's the scenario, then you sort of have the the problem you had in a number of Arab Spring countries, that there's a consensus against the status quo, but there's no ability to form a consensus for a new status quo. And rather than actually move from one condition to another, you revert to the same condition that people found unsatisfactory. And the inability to have credible communication and credible knowledge ends up serving if not the interest of stability, at least the, the interest of permanency of people in power. Does that, is that how that plays out if you played out a little bit more?
2: I mean, the fact is, again, if you look at sort of what the UAE and Egypt and Saudi Arabia have done in the case of Sudan, right, that was a great example of those three countries trying to sort of ensure that the army remains in power, right? Even though there had been a large scale uprising up against army rule, they had wanted Bashir out, and they got Bashir out, they wanted to go against the military as well. And yet there was a concerted effort by those three countries to sort of convince people like, hey, you should side with stability, side with uh, permanence, etc., you know, make sure things are calm, you know, and all these other ideas that are basically against any real change. But, you know, unfortunately, yes, I mean, I mean the short answer is, is that, uh, yes, these countries will, you know, you know, eventually, you know, have to say this, it seems like they have to revert back to these original states that they've had in the past, where you have sort of you know, sort of strong man in charge, uh, you know, in this dictatorship idea, mostly because there are other countries that are also nudging them towards that course. But it should be said that the price to be paid otherwise is so high. And I mean, Syria is a great example of this, where, you know, you've had the revolution that happened in 2011. You know, we can argue endlessly about how right or wrong it was. But at this point, you know, I'll wager that you'll find many, many people in the country who just basically want the war to end no matter who's in power. And that's a large part of it. I mean, a large part of all this is exhaustion, right? Just exhaustion with, with leaders and being exhausted with policies and being exhausted with sort of fighting against the status quo. Eventually, people just want to be able to sort of send their kids to school and make sure they come back safely and perhaps, you know, have a modicum of dignity while they work. Unfortunately, that's, you know, you know quite a high thing in the Arab world. But at the same time, yeah, these leaders, you know, try to offer that and they try to sort of offer an idea of that. And unfortunately, it's that it tends to make people sort of shy away from the notion of revolution and real change. And, you know, I don't think the COVID-19 is going to make that any better, unfortunately.
0: And that brings us back to the old expression in the Arab world that I heard when I was there decades ago, that politics has its own people. Exactly. And if you want to play that game, you play that game. And otherwise, keep your head down and just do your job.
2: Exactly. You know, it's, it's perhaps a defeatist stance, right? But you talk to people about Iraq and stuff like that, right? And Iraqis will tell you that, you know what, yes, you know, Saddam was a brutal dictator. Yes, it was bad news. But the fact is that if you didn't sort of dabble with politics, if you left it the Nasha, as you just said, then it was fine, right? You could actually sort of, you know, pursue a decent existence. And in the case of Iraqis, you know, you know, quite often before the 80s, it was it was quite a good existence. But yeah, I mean, the fact is that you just see sort of this very, very dire picture when it comes to actually trying to create real change in the Arab world, mostly because uh, you have such strong forces arrayed against it, right? right? And again, I mean, in the case of Egypt, Saudi and the UAE, and Turkey and Qatar as well, for that matter, right? You're seeing countries with just huge, massive budgets being used or being employed in the service of a certain political ideal. And it's just hard for countries, you know, where you have sort of these organic uprisings to actually not be co-opted, to actually not be sort of lured by all this money and by all this power. It's just the way it is, unfortunately.
0: And hard for politics to get traction when nobody has any idea what to believe. Bulos, thank you very much for joining us on Babel.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Next up, John McKinley and I discuss the evolution and role of state-run news agencies in the Middle East.
3: So this week, we are talking about how state-run news agencies in the Middle East have changed over time. And John, in 1998, you wrote a book about this called New Media, New Politics, from satellite television to the internet in the Arab world. Can you talk a little bit about what was the goal for Al Jazeera when it was created in 1996?
0: When the Arab media began, it was independent. And then through the 20th century, it became a, an organ of state information policy. Uh, there were censors that kept people from learning outside information. And there were government editors who insisted that people only learn inside information. And that there are a lot of journalists in the Arab world who who really were sort of government mobilizers. What Al Jazeera tried to do was to push out all that bad government information by using sunlight, by showing people that there were lots of different sources of information, lots of different perspectives.
3: Is Al Jazeera still fulfilling the same role today that it did then when it was started?
0: There's a sense that over time, Al Jazeera has become part of the mobilization press. And Saudi Arabia began financing Al Arabiya as an antidote to what they saw as a growing amount of propaganda coming out from Al Jazeera. And in many ways, Al Jazeera lost its reputation as the channel of record, as the source of the best information. And people began to see Al Jazeera, just like any other state-run station, as that they're fulfilling the agenda of a state.
1: And I think it's probably also worth being specific when, when talking about Al Jazeera, because there isn't really one Al Jazeera. I mean, if you look at Al Jazeera Arabic and Al Jazeera English, they're really quite different. And editorially, they take quite different lines. I think Al Jazeera Arabic is much more conservative. It frequently hosts guests who would be considered much more controversial on a variety of issues. Uh, Whereas Al Jazeera English, I think, is, is more liberal. And I think that divergence is important because when people, if you're consuming Al Jazeera in English, you might think, oh, this isn't so bad. This isn't kind of partisan in the way that John was describing.
3: Do either of you have any examples um, from Al Jazeera or other state-run news agencies of how it's partisan or how it's influenced?
0: So one issue is I was, uh, at one point I was at the BBC studio watching an Al Jazeera report and they had a reporter uh, in Iraq essentially exhorting the people of the town in which he was reporting from to rise up against the United States. And he was acting like he was reporting, but he said in a very excited voice, the people of Iraq are calling on their countrymen to do this. The people of Iraq are insisting that this against the United States. And and I later spoke to the reporter who I've known for quite some time and said, that's not reporting. It's not reporting when you are exhorting people to take an action in the name of the people who you're covering. That is becoming the news instead of reporting on the news. One of the other Al Jazeera hosts was listening to this conversation and said, this argument is great, you have to do it on my show. Uh, Al Jazeera has sometimes relished the fact that it could pit people against each other having an argument And it liked the argument more than it liked leading people toward any sort of truth or resolution. It loved the fact that that people were disagreeing.
3: John, did you end up going on Al Jazeera for that argument? I was never asked,
0: which is okay, because the Al Jazeera debates aren't always fair. That's fine. But I mean, there's a larger question, which is, is the news making people better informed or worse informed? Is the news bringing people together or driving them apart? The initial vision for Al Jazeera was to have people converge around the truth. And by pushing out censorship and by pushing out these central government agendas to control information, you would bring people closer to having a discussion about truth. In the name of viewership, in the name of excitement, Sometimes, arguably, in the name of furthering Qatari foreign policy, Al Jazeera has become another player. And in many ways, we see the same polarization going on in Arab news that we had 20, 30, 40 years ago. There's no censorship. But as Nabi talks about quite profoundly, there's flooding the zone with disinformation. That's coming from all kinds of places, making it harder to report and harder for audiences to understand what they need to understand.
1: That politicization then sort of opens Al Jazeera up to become involved in in regional politics. Um, I mean, when uh, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt and Bahrain decided to put a blockade on Qatar, accusing it of supporting terrorism, among many other things, one of their demands was for Al Jazeera to be closed down. And I think that sort of gets at just how much of of an issue they consider this And, and, and they view sort of regional states consider Al Jazeera to be to be a threat.
3: So to circle back to your book, John, it's been 22 years. What did you get wrong and what still holds true? You said that you didn't think that the internet would be a huge driver of change. Do you still hold that point of view? I think
0: websites were not going to be a huge driver of change. And I think that's largely true. I think in many ways, the the days when satellite television could force conversations was where the sort of water cooler conversations everybody had, that's gone because the television audience has fragmented. What I think has really changed is the nature of the internet has changed. The internet is not a thing. The internet has become a conduit for all kinds of social media and messaging and other things that have created a much more fractured information environment. And so rather than having different large conversations, which arguably were a large part of what made the Arab uprisings of 2011 happen, it feels to me there are many more fragmented conversations. There's an information ecosystem, which is much more complicated, which is much harder to influence, but ultimately has a lot more garbage in it than the relatively smaller number of satellite television stations that I was writing about 22 years ago.
1: I think one thing is when we think about our role as researchers as well and how to verify information, we have in some ways the luxury of being able to look into sources and consider their credibility. And it used to be, I think, easier to do that. You could say, oh, this piece is from an outlet that's funded by whatever country. Therefore, it's likely to have a stance that's that's pro that country. But now when there's this fragmentation as as John talks about, it's so much more difficult to see where the origin of information is. So it's much harder to verify if it's true or not that creates the, the perfect ecosystem for for disinformation. And I think governments have taken advantage of that while they have maybe lost some of their control. Uh, because their monopolies on, on the flow of information have, have declined, they have found new ways of spreading disinformation. And Nabi and, and, and John talked about bots and how there are state-funded bots. And so I think governments have evolved and, um, and and it's a very difficult thing to do. And it's it's difficult to always be on your guard when you're on something like Twitter and, and to be really thinking, is this true? It's very easy to press free tweets. It's, it's a lot harder to investigate a claim.
0: You know, w- when I was in Syria in 1991, uh, sometimes you'd pick up Al-Hayat, the international Arab newspaper, and articles would literally be clipped from the newspaper because the government censors didn't want you to see it. Uh, when I was in Egypt in the early 90s, sometimes the international newspapers wouldn't come out in the morning because the government censors didn't want you to see it. And one of the things that Al Jazeera did is it, it really made censorship largely irrelevant in the region. Many states had very powerful censorship organizations, and that became impossible. What they replaced censorship with is creating distrust of everything. And so you flood the zone with false information, with stories, with conspiracies, so nobody trusts anything. And rather than keeping people from knowing information, you let them know the information but you have them cast doubt on the information. In many ways, this is the revenge of the censors by pushing out good information and replacing it with bad.
1: Which then creates a huge problem in times like now with the spread of COVID-19, where governments need their people to be listening to their advice and, and believing them. And uh, they no longer, there's so much distrust that, that perhaps the people no longer believe what they're saying.
0: Because nobody has credibility. It's a very dangerous game to play.
3: Thank you both for joining me this week. Maybe in 22 years, we'll revisit this again and talk about how Al Jazeera has continued to change. In the meantime, tune in next week for a meze on Russian language instruction in Syria.
0: Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at Mideast.